So this morning, uh, we're in Mark chapter 13. We're continuing Mark, and we're in verses 28 through 37. I will read that. <clears throat> Mark 28, or excuse me, Mark 13, starting in verse 28. You can find that on page 6 in your bulletin. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for the gift to be able to gather here this morning. Lord, we praise you for watching over us, as we just read about in our statement of faith for protecting your people. God, we also thank you for physically watching over us and protecting us to allow us to gather here this morning despite the weather. Lord, we also give you praise because you are a God who does not change. So when we read your word, we can know that it's just as true today as it was yesterday and it'll be just as true tomorrow and forevermore. Thank you for that good news. Thank you for who you are as God who does not change. We pray that as we gather around your word, that you would sanctify us, that you would use this ordinary means of grace of hearing your word taught and preached and hearing the songs sung and partaking in the Lord's Supper. Lord, we pray that by this act, these acts that we're doing as we gather, that they would sanctify us, that they'd make us more like our Savior, Make us more like our Lord. We pray that you would make us a people who are theologically rich and relationally deep and missionally engaged, that we would seek opportunities to share this good news with others, that we would be marked by love. Do that. We pray also for our community. Lord, think of teachers who are still trying to figure out how to manage their classrooms in the midst of this COVID season. We pray for endurance for them. Lord, we pray for our Westville Police Department. Think of Chief of Police Charles Chandler. Lord, give him wisdom on how to lead the department. Lord, we pray for our ministry partners. Think of the Follets who are serving in unreached people in West Africa. We pray for Alex and Lauren that they would be encouraged, that they would learn the language, that they would also have endurance as it looks like it's going to be a very long road. We pray for fruit. 
pray also for Story Presbyterian Church here in Westerville, that you would continue to use them as a gospel lighthouse. We pray also for Huber Heights First Baptist and in Huber Heights, that they would continue to see fruit or that you would raise up more elders in their congregation as they have recognized the need. And now, Lord, we pray for the Tonga people. As that volcano erupted last Saturday, we pray that you would help them rebuild, help them recover, provide physical needs for them. And we pray that wherever a cup of cold water, wherever a lending hand is given, that it would be done in the name of Christ, and that through this situation, many would come to know Jesus. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. So as many of you uh, may know, my name is Rob. I'm the lead pastor here at Citizens. And as you also may know, last Saturday, as we just prayed about, the, there was a big volcano eruption um, right off the coast of the Tonga people. And there was a, a decent scare for the west coast of the states where there's a tsunami warning. And many of you remember the tsunami that hit Japan. And so there's a tsunami warning. People are a little bit concerned. They also got concerned because on the West Coast, as you may or may not know, there's a huge fault line, the San Andreas Fault. So maybe you've seen the movie with The Rock. And so the, this is a eh, good movie. But this is a real concern for the people who are on the West Coast. San Andreas Fault, it runs 800 miles up the backbone of California. And it marks the boundary where two major tectonic plates come together. And scientists say that it is roughly 80 years past when they would have expected another massive earthquake to take place. And so scientists say that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when this massive event will happen. And they have estimated that there will be incredible destruction. And the number that they put on it as of the last decades, that number likely has only gone up, but was roughly $200 billion worth of damage. That's what they expect will happen at some point with the San Andreas Fault. And in a similar way, with it being not a matter of if, but a matter of when, Christians, as we look at these passages in Mark 13, regardless of where they stand on the eschatological end times debate, wherever they stand there, they all agree that it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when Christ will return. And also, the good news is that when Christ returns, It's not that he's going to bring billions and billions of dollars of destruction, but he's going to make all things right. He's going to make all things new and good. So the question is, if it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when, what are we supposed to do until he does return? And Jesus addresses that in the passage that we are in this morning. He says, because the Son of Man is near, we must stay awake. Because the Son of Man is near, we must stay awake. And as we go through the passage, we'll get a better understanding of what staying awake, what staying faithful means. But because he is near, we must stay awake. So if you've been with us for uh, any amount of time, you recognize we've been going through Mark for over a year now. We've intentionally gone passage by passage just so we can better understand what God's Word says. And we find ourselves towards the end of the book now. And so by way of brief recap... So we don't have all day, but by way of brief recap, the overall theme that we've seen in Mark is that it's God restoring his wayward people. We are wayward people. It was us who fell, us who left God's side, not God who left ours. And so God is restoring us through the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
And so in Mark 12, just recently, we saw Jesus interacting with religious leaders, mostly throughout uh, Wednesday of Passion Week, Passion Week being the week leading up to Jesus's death on the cross. So we see this Wednesday. And then Mark 13, as they finished these back and forth interactions with religious leaders, the disciples and Jesus are coming out of the temple and the disciples say, look at the amazing temple. Look how, look at the massive stones. And Jesus lets them know that that temple that they're so mesmerized by will be destroyed. There will not be one stone left on another. There's a day where it's going to be destroyed. And so Mark 13 is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's there right across from Mount of Olives. He's interacting with them. He's telling them all these things that are to take place. And in, in my view, Mark 13 has easily been the most difficult chapter to preach on because there are very different understandings of how this passage comes to be. And so what I've been trying to say is let's focus on the things that we need to know with the passage and have Christian charity where there's some debate. And it's good to have these conversations. It sharpens us. But Alistair Begg on this, because there's a lot of, fr- or a lot of prophetic language in this chapter. Alistair Begg points out, and I would agree with him, that there's immediate fulfillment to prophecy, there's intermediate fulfillment, and there's ultimate fulfillment. See these three different kinds of fulfillment. So verses 1 through 13, we saw Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple. We see the disciples asking Jesus when these things will take place, and he begins to share some signs. And then in verses 14 through 23, Jesus shares more signs. He talks about the abomination of desolation in verse 14. We talked about how that was intermediate fulfillment in AD 70 with Roman general Titus who came in, destroyed the temple. The temple was literally destroyed. Not one stone was left on another. Then we see that there's an opportunity for ultimate fulfillment with the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. We see him talk about a massive tribulation in verse 19. And so in AD 70, when that temple was destroyed, there were 1.1 million Jews that were also killed either by the sword or by starvation because the Roman army came in to destroy everything and everyone who was left in there who wasn't killed by the sword, they didn't let them leave the city. So they let them slowly starve. But then also we can see that there may be a greater tribulation down the road. And then verses 24 to 27, Jesus begins to elaborate on his second coming. So what's going to happen after That tribulation is what he talks about in verse 24. Namely, his second coming, his return back. And so today, the passage that we are in, verses 28 through 37, we see Jesus elaborating on two primary things. The timing of his return and the command to us while we wait. The timing and the command. You can see that in your notes on your bulletin. So we will get into that first portion. So the first point, the timing of Jesus' return, the timing is near. Timing is near. Verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So we see this lesson from the fig tree. Now remember the fig tree in Mark 11. So earlier we talked about this fig tree, and it was cursed by Jesus for its fruitlessness. Jesus went up to it. It had leaves, which represented that there was fruit. 
He went up to it, and there, in fact, was no fruit. And so he cursed it, said, you'll never produce fruit again. So remember that portion of understanding when it comes to fig trees, that they are unlike many of the trees that we know of because the fruit comes first and then the leaves. So if there are leaves on the tree, there should be fruit. But fig trees are also similar to trees around here in that the leaves come around springtime. And when you start to see leaves on the trees, you know that it's getting warmer. And after spring comes summer. I was talking with Finley about this. She was telling me that, Daddy, once the snow melts, it'll be spring. I said, well, it'd be close. And I said, do you know what comes after spring? She said, Easter. I was like, eh, summer. And she's like, oh, it's summer, summer. I'm like, do you know what comes after summer? And she said, um, so it starts with an F. And she's like, fummer. <laughs> I see how you could think that it would be fummer. It's fall. And so this, this understanding that the seasons, we can count on these seasons. That when we see leaves, we expect it to get warmer. This is a natural pattern. It's the way God has designed things. So Jesus is pointing us to this fig tree, saying, when you see leaves, know that summer is near. And it's important to notice some parallels between Mark 11, which we were just talking about, where the fig tree is first brought up, and Mark 13. We see in Mark 11, there's a fig tree, and we see a temple ministry. So fig tree is representative of the temple ministry. And then we see the fruitless fig tree, and we see a fruitless temple ministry. We see a withered fig tree, and now we see a withered or destroyed temple. So there's some parallels here for us to be reminded of. And so when Jesus says that these things indicate that he is near, we have to ask the question, what does he mean by these things? And that's where a lot of the debate is. What, do, what does these things mean? Mean. So I'll present to you the position that I'm convinced of is that the, these things that Jesus is referring to is referencing the things he mentioned in verses 3 through 23. He talks about these things, the coming destruction of the temple. And he lists other signs of persecution as well, but it's this coming destruction of the temple. So essentially when these things, when you see the temple destroyed, know that I'm near. You see this happening, know that my second coming is near. Because we see in verse 24, in those days after that tribulation, then we see what Jesus explains. So that these things is what he's talking about, this tribulation, this um, coming where the temple, where no stone be left on another. And then he explains them in 24 through 27. After that, here's what you can expect. Then he says in today's passage, when you see these things taking place, know that what I just described here about my second return, that's near. It says in verse 28, when you see leaves, you know that summer is near. When you see temple destruction, verse 29, you know that Jesus is near at the very gates. Now, there's an important distinction that we need to make. Is that when Jesus says near, he doesn't mean here. It's near, it's at the gates, but it's not yet here. And so when the disciples saw these things taking place, It doesn't mean that Jesus' second coming is going to happen right now. It means it's near. Be on the lookout. The 
it's helpful to understand that the incarnation, Jesus coming in the flesh, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and his second coming are all one divine act. Charles Cranfield elaborates this better than what I could. So let me read what he says here. He says, if we realize that the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension on the one hand, and the second coming on the other, belong essentially together and are in a real sense one event, one divine act, being held apart only by the mercy of God who desires to give men opportunity for faith and repentance, then we can see that in a very real sense, the latter is always imminent now that the former has happened. Ever since the incarnation, men have been living in the last days. This is this incarnation crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father is all part of the one act of redemption that God is doing, which includes Jesus' return. It says, ever since the ascension, that next act is near. It's the next in the sequence. So this, when he says this generation will not pass away, you see that in verse 30, until all these things take place, we need to remember that all these things are the things in verses 3 through 23. And that that generation, which lasts about 40 years, Jesus is saying this in about the year 33 AD, 30 or 33, depending on where you land on that debate. But roughly 40 years later, 70 AD is when the temple was destroyed. So Jesus tells his disciples the truth, that these things will take place. And then the next thing in the act of redemption is his return. So it is near. We knew he would tell the truth because we see in verse 31, if you want to look with me there, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so Jesus is making this, he's contrasting the temporary with the eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus' words are eternal. What we see here and now will pass away. What's your hope in? Is our hope in the here and now what we have here? Or is our hope in the eternal? We can trust God's words. We can trust Jesus' words because he is, in fact, God. And Hebrews 13 tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. If he said it to his disciples then, it's just as true for us now. Numbers 23 says that God does not change his mind. And so today, later we'll sing, turn your eyes. Verse 3 says, his word shall not fail you. He promised, believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying his perfect salvation to tell. Jesus is near. His words will not fail us. He promised. So therefore, we must go to others and share this good news, one that we have salvation, one that we have a Redeemer, a Savior who is able to take away our sin, and two, that He is near. He's coming back soon. We've been in the last days since the temple was destroyed. And so, Christian, if Jesus', if Jesus words are in fact true, then we have an obligation to share his words with our friends, our family, our co-workers, our neighbors, 
our community, we have an obligation to share Jesus' words with one another. It helps us fill out the one another's that we see in the New Testament. But also, Christian, if Jesus' words are true, then we can be encouraged. Because all of the pain and the suffering that we see now, that we desire to go away, there is coming a day when it will. Be encouraged that Jesus is coming back, that he is the one who can make all things right, and he will make all things right. Which This should also lead us to a deep joy in Christ. Now, also want to distinguish the difference between joy and just being annoyingly bubbly. Okay? doesn't mean that you have to be bubbly and happy all the time. Read the Psalms. You can see that the psalmist is very honest with God. It's not that his joy is taken away, but he may not be happy in that moment. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness can be taken away very quickly. You can be honest. You can say that I'm I'm not thrilled right now, but I do have a deep-rooted joy knowing that Christ is going to return. That is where my hope is. Spurgeon says, it does not trouble us to think that Christ shall come. It is indeed our joy to live as though tomorrow might be the judgment day. That, that is the style of living, which is the best of all. To live as if tomorrow were the day that Jesus is to return. That is the best kind of living. Maybe you're in the room and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you've been putting things off. Maybe you're trying to work through. Maybe you just wouldn't say that Jesus is someone who I'm trusting my eternity to at this point. I would encourage you just to be careful because there are at least two things that you do not know. You don't know the span of your life. You don't know if you'll make it home today. You don't know if you'll see tomorrow. Second thing, you don't know when Christ will return. So even if you are alive and healthy. He may return this afternoon. He may return a month from now. He may return 10 years from now. We just don't know. So you don't know the span of your life. You don't know the timing of Christ's return. So I encourage you, don't put off getting to understand who Christ is. If you have any questions about Christianity, if you have any questions about who Jesus is, please feel free to ask me afterward. Ask somebody sitting around you. It's a conversation that I assure you people would love to have. So Jesus' return, the timing, is near. And now the command, as we await his return, the command is stay awake. It's the second point in your bulletin. The command is to stay awake. So we read in verse 32, but concerning that day, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And so if someone claims to you that they know when Jesus will return, that they've done the math, they've looked at the hidden code in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they're filling out that, that meme where the guy's crazy and there's red string attached everywhere on the wall, if they claim to know, don't believe them. of those who have claimed to know have been wrong to date. And 100% going forward will continue to be wrong. So do not believe if someone says they know the day and the hour when Christ will return. Now, 
something else to be aware of with this particular verse where Jesus is saying he doesn't know the day or the hour, there will be critics who will say, aha, this verse right here shows that Jesus was not God. And the argument goes, God knows all things. Jesus says he doesn't know the hour of his return, therefore Jesus isn't God. What they fail to see here is that Jesus is not only 100% man, but he's also 100% God. And we see in Philippians 2.7 that Jesus has self-imposed limits. When he came in the flesh, he took on self-imposed limits. The fancy theological term is the kenosis. It's the self-emptying. Philippians 2.7 elaborates on this. says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so Jesus, there's a difference between not having the ability and putting self-imposed limits. And so Jesus never stopped being God. But he laid aside some privileges that were his in heaven. Think about it. Jesus in heaven never got hungry. He was never tired. On earth, he gets hungry. On earth, he needs water. On earth, he gets tired. On earth, he doesn't know when his second coming will be. We've seen several other areas in even just the Gospel of Mark where Jesus does know the future. So there are particular portions that he's allowed himself to see the future. But in this right here, he says he does not know when his return will be. So understand the difference between a self-imposed limit and him just not being God. He is God. But Philippians 2.7 says that he's emptied himself of some of his privileges. And then verses 33 to 37 points, Jesus goes on to point his disciples to a mini parable with a big lesson. A mini parable with a big lesson. So he says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Says it's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Jesus is letting his disciples know that he's going to depart from them. They will have work to do, but they must stay awake. They must remain faithful while he is gone. The master of the house in this parable is, is God. The servants are his people. And the work that he has given his people is faithfulness wherever you may be placed. Whether that's at home, or that's in your job, or that's at school, that's at church, it's in your family. We are called wherever God has placed us to be faithful. To faithfully exercise the work that he has entrusted to us. That term, keep or stay awake, is used four times in this passage. Four times. So it's, it's important. We, we don't know when our master will return. But we do know that he will return. And we do know, as verse 36 tells us, that he will return suddenly. We won't be ready for it. Or excuse me, we won't know the exact time. We should be ready by being faithful. But it'll come as a surprise. It'll come suddenly. So we must stay awake. And staying awake essentially means stay faithful. 
remain faithful. And that can be an arbitrary term, so let's unpack that a little bit, because we must be ready for his return. And the way we do that is by staying awake. So before I talk about the Christian, maybe you're a non-Christian, would encourage you to, and I don't say this harshly, but to wake up, to arise, to see who Christ is, to see that he is who he says he is in the scriptures, to see that he is in fact returning to live that way, to repent of your sin and to call on him as your Lord, as your Savior, as your treasure, as your master, as your king. Arise, wake up. And then Christian, stay awake. Continue to look at Christ. And so what, is, what does that mean? Because that's also a bit of an arbitrary term. So I'm going to put before you at least three things what it means to stay awake. You could add more to this, but here are at least three. One is fighting sin. We fight sin. That's what Christians do. We try to put sin to death in our lives in one degree at a time. It's a slow process, but we fight. And there will be seasons of victory, and there will be seasons of loss. But the Christian continues to fight. Christian, even in those seasons of loss, reminds himself or herself of the gospel, that the work has been done in Christ. We don't need to give up because we've fallen. We continue to fight. John Owen, Puritan, says this. He says, if you are fighting sin, you are alive. If you're fighting sin, you are alive. Take heart. But if sin holds sway unopposed, you are dead no matter how lively this sin makes you feel. If you are fighting sin, you are alive. Take heart. So the first way we stay awake is by fighting sin. The second way is by caring for God's house. We see this this illustration is the servant or the master leaving his house and he's entrusting his house to his servants. So when we care for God's house, referring namely to the church. So be with the body, engage in discipleship, invest in others, commit to walking with one another through thick and thin. Be marked by love toward one another. Be charitable to one another. Be gracious. Point each other to holiness, to righteousness. If you see a brother or sister going astray, pull them back. Care for God's household, God's people. And the third thing, so we see fight sin, care for God's house, Third one is be on guard. Be on guard. What I mean by that is be aware of false gospels. Be on guard against false ideologies that say this is where salvation is. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means. Be be aware of the false ways that we may see that in our culture. And I have four examples for that. So, the first is a works-based gospel, that it's faith alone, plus you got to do some of these things over here. Yes, we want to see fruit. Fruit is an evidence of the fact that you have been regenerated, but the fruit comes after that regeneration. It's evidence. It's not requisite to make you a Christian. Second is prosperity and gospel, the idea that if you do follow Jesus, then you will be healthy and wealthy, and prosperous. This is particularly 
powerful in certain streams. It's um, something that us as a nation have outsourced to uh, third world countries. But this idea that if you do follow Jesus, then you will have the things that you want. He wants to give you all of these things. And what that is, is it's, it's an over-realized understanding of his second coming. So when he comes back, we will be in a place where we are healthy and, so to speak, wealthy, because we will be in the richness of Christ. That's when he comes back. Before he comes back, we strive for faithfulness. And more often than not in Scripture, we see that as his people pursue faithfulness, persecution comes with it. The third false gospel is a consumer gospel. This idea that Jesus can give you what you want. It's slightly different than prosperity gospel, which refers to health and wealth. The consumer gospel says you want a great marriage? Then you need to follow the principles that are laid out in, in Scripture. And <laughs> I'm not against that. Shouldn't be against that. But if the point of you following things in scripture is to get that great marriage or to get financial peace or to to get fill in the blank then you are the consumer and Jesus is the engine by which you're trying to get that thing that is a false gospel as well it's a consumer driven gospel must follow Christ because we love Christ because he is the one who has brought us back to God we rejoice in that and yes he we absolutely want to submit every area of our life to Scripture. And we think that when we do that, generally speaking, there will be good things that, that come from that. But it's not, Jesus is not this magic pixie dust that we put on something to get this other thing that we want. And the fourth thing is the social gospel, where our group gets to define what we call justice and determines when it's been satisfied. I get to sit in on the Thursday community group and they're getting ready to go through that. And man alive, do I kind of crave to be in in that group just to hear the conversations because it's something that the church does need to have conversations about. I'm encouraged to hear how that continues to go. But we, we are God's people. God is a just God. We love justice. We pursue justice. However, we define justice by God's standard, with God's law. And so this idea that we are only experiencing the gospel if we are also seeing justice in the way that we've defined it is a false gospel as well. We need to define justice the way that God's word defines it. One of my favorite hymns is, He Will Hold Me Fast. And one of the verses says, For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Jesus is coming back. And yeah, now we pursue justice the way that the Bible defines justice. But we have this ultimate hope that that will never be perfectly achieved until Christ comes back. And so we don't put our hope in our efforts to reform everything. We still engage in it, but our hope is in Christ, in Him returning to make all things right. We don't put our hope in ourselves. We put our hope in His return. In uh, Some of you have heard of Pompeii and Mount Vesuvius. Started this sermon off with volcano, ending it with volcano. In AD 79, 
uh, Mount Vesuvius erupted and destroyed the, the city of Pompeii. And many people were buried, and they were buried in various positions. You see some down um, in safe areas trying to hide away from the explosion. You see others um, just in the street. You see others holding each other. Um, there were some, or they did find a, a Roman sentinel, a guard, and they found him standing at the city gate, still clutching his weapon in the position that his captain had placed him. So while the earth shook beneath him, there, there were floods, there were ashes, there were cinders that were overwhelming him. He stood at his post because he knew that his master told him to be there and he wanted to be faithful even to the end. And so us as Christians are called to be like that Roman sentinel. We've been called to stand watch. You saw in that passage, uh, the doorman, to stay awake, to stay, keep watch. We as followers of Jesus, our master has gone to be at the right hand of the Father, but he has told us he is returning. We are called to stand watch. We are called to live knowing that Jesus could return at any time. Because the Son of Man is near, we must stay awake. So in conclusion, there are three ways that we do this. We proclaim the gospel, that God in His holiness, even though we are separated from Him because of our sin, He has made a way for us to be restored to Him. And He's done this through Christ and through Christ alone. Not in the reforms that we can bring on our own, not in the things that we can acquire here on earth. He has done it through Christ and Christ alone. So we must respond. And how we respond will determine our eternity. So we must proclaim this gospel. We must protect the gospel from anything being added to it. We must protect the gospel from false representations of it. And then we must practice the gospel by obeying God's commands, by being faithful wherever he places us, by prioritizing the household of God, and by reminding one another of Christ's finished work. We're called to stay awake. We're called to be faithful. But the truth is, we've already failed at this. We've gone after other things. Our minds have been consumed with other things. As Michael's praying the prayer of confession, he's listed off several things there where we've already fallen this week. But the good news is that there is one that has stayed awake, that stayed faithful on our behalf. And he... This faithful one is preparing a place for the faithful. However, we are not faithful. But because of his work, because of him coming down and living a perfectly righteous life, a faithful life, and then being raised from the dead, anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in him and calls on the name of Christ, is united with Christ, gets to go to this place where the faithful are. Not because of our work, but because of his work. He's coming back. This faithful one is coming back to bring his people to the place that he has been preparing for them. Call on Christ today. Embrace the faithful one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news that you have provided a faithful one 
that you have kindly provided for us. Jesus, thank you for living a righteous life. Thank you that despite the ways you were tempted, thank you for being faithful, for staying awake perfectly. Help us, Holy Spirit, to stay awake. Help us to go from this place encouraged by the good news and have that drive our faithfulness, drive our watchfulness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.